following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. We're so afraid of the failure, of the, the risk of doing something potentially um, that we don't even try. But when we do try to do something, we actually realize that so often the things that we're afraid of um, aren't real. And there's pretty much only an upside to be gained. Welcome to the Forbes Under 30 Podcast. I'm Steve Goldblum, your host. On this show, we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators. Today, I'm speaking with Teju Ravilochin via Skype. He is the CEO and co-founder of Uncharted, formerly known as the Unreasonable Institute, an organization that supports social entrepreneurs with mentors, funders, and partners. Teju, hello. Hi there, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time. I have to say, I've watched videos of you on the internet in preparation for today, and it's amazing. The TED Talk that you gave jumps out of the gate with with a story that that would be if you wouldn't mind uh telling us about it now um about you i think it's in college asking having the courage to ask a woman out <laughs> uh sure you describe so, it and, and and feel free to abbreviate i don't want to make you do the whole story but you describe it in such vivid detail and tie it into your work that i feel like our audience would get so much out of it. I definitely felt, especially in college, deeply afraid of being um, honest or forthcoming with the desire to get to know someone um, via a date or something like that. And so um, a group of my friends and I sort of made this agreement where if we if we found ourselves drawn to a woman for any reason, that we would have to initiate a conversation, initiate spending time together or whatever. So there was this particular woman that I uh, bumped into out uh, when I was walking out of my Hindi class named Allison. And I just, I just thought she was stunningly beautiful and uh, I got very nervous to talk to her. So I tried to avoid her extensively uh, until I told my friends about it and they were like, no, we made this agreement. You have to, you have to ask her on a date. And so I tell in this TEDx talk the sort of very embarrassing and halting way in which I asked her out. And, um, and she, she listened to everything I had to say. And at the end she said, no. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was really ex- inspired by that moment. I was inspired because nothing catastrophic took place. I, I, I realized that I had this like terrible fear of what would happen and literally nothing happened. My life was no different. This is, this is a very common human experience that we're so afraid of the failure of the, the risk of doing something potentially um, that we don't even try. But when we do try to do something, we actually realize that so often the things that we're afraid of um, aren't real. Right. And there's pretty much only an upside to be gained. And so that was the, that was the message of that, of that story. And excuse me for a minute to thank our sponsors LifeLock and Amika. 
More about these sponsors later in the show. And there's so much to be learned as an entrepreneur from this because if there were 10 Allisons, I'm sure two of them would have said yes. Yeah, and, and we've experienced that as, as entrepreneurs in raising money or in securing partnerships or hiring people. Right. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be this sort of referendum on your worth or your value or your ability to do something meaningful and serve other people. Sometimes it just means it's not for me. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't other opportunities or other ways you can accomplish what you're looking to accomplish. So, yeah, I think it's a it definitely taught me a lot, that experience. And, and you, I would highly recommend it for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, uh, I can tell you as, as uh, I can relate. And as a guy, I know at the library when I was in university, you just there's nothing more terrifying than walking up to someone, approaching them, being vulnerable and saying, Hey, would you like to go out? It, there, it, it's it's insurmountable. And um, there's a quote that you uh, really took to from George Bernard Shaw, which is all progress depends on the unreasonable man. So can you – why was that quote so important to you? And, and, it, and it obviously shaped the what was the uh, uh, formerly known as the Unreasonable Institute, now Uncharted. Yeah. Um, I love that quotation because – I think when we look at, you know, the work that we do at Uncharted is around solving social and environmental problems. How do we ensure that people are free of of the chains of poverty, that people have what they need to lead fulfilling lives? How do we build an energy system that allows our planet to stick around um, and allows us to stick around on that planet? Um, You know, these kinds some of the questions that we're interested in, 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 supporting progress on and um when when you look at problems like that it's perfectly reasonable to say there's nothing that can be done smarter people have tried for hundreds maybe even thousands of years to address some of these issues and they persist today and so it doesn't make a lot of sense to take on these issues um and I think I think that's that's very fair. A lot of data, a lot of evidence exists to support the idea that we can't really do much about these issues. Um, but I think that it takes someone who is who is willing to insist, despite that evidence, that there's another way, and willing to engage in trial and error to find new ways. Um, you know, in order to in order to make progress on some of these issues, that person has to be a little bit crazy. They have to be unreasonable. And so we love that George Bernard Shaw quotation, which in its full form is the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man and woman and um, person, really a human being. And um, and so I think I think that's why we. Um, we find so much value in that in that uh, insight from George Bernard Shaw. I imagine that another um, adage that means a lot to you is to whom much is given, much is expected. And uh, I know that you know you're first generation Indian, right? First generation American. Yes, my parents are from from India. Your parents are from India. And uh, you went back with them and you described this going back with them and asking, uh, seeing, you know, being around 10 years old and seeing beggars or boys your age and asking your father, why, why is he begging? Why am I not? Um, what, what was his response to you? And uh, do, you re- do you remember your life being different after you had that epiphany or realization? 
Yeah, so my dad and I are walking in a market, I believe in Chennai, my mother's hometown. And like you mentioned, this little boy about my age came up to my dad and asked him for money. And my life was so fundamentally different. And so I just asked my dad to, to help me understand why this difference existed. And he didn't really have a good answer. He said, I don't know what to tell you, son. I, you know, the best I can do is to tell you that there, there's, there's luck involved. Uh, we're born into a family, into a situation that we don't choose ourselves, but that often has a lot to say about our future and where we end up. And I just thought that that was so unfair. And he said, you're right, it's unfair. And that's why you've got to use your privilege in service of other people. Is there anything that you can do with the luck that you have had um, to to address this or adjust this, this situation in our world? And, you know, I thought a lot about it. And I was like, well, a lot of people just don't know what to do in the situation. So they, they don't really get deeply involved. Um, and my dad's a doctor. So I asked him, well, but... A lot of people don't know how to take care of sick people. Is that right? And my dad said, yes. And he, I said, but you do. And he said, yes. And I, and I said, well, where did you learn that? And he said, I went to medical school. So I said, is there a medical school for poverty? Can you go somewhere and learn how to address these kinds of issues? And he didn't know if there was such a place. Mm-hmm. But I thought a lot about that idea for a long time and that's, I think, what we tried to start in Unreasonable Institute. How could we take promising people, often hailing from, from poor communities themselves, and give them the support that they need to make a difference in these issues through mentorship, through training, through funding, um, and through a supportive network? Could we actually help them to address the problem of poverty and other other issues as well? Were you pushed as a kid to go into medicine, or did you think... Uh, you'd be doing something different when you were young. As far as entrepreneurship, I never really had any um, any experience with entrepreneurship growing up. Um, I wound up going to India with a friend of mine, Vlad, in college, and we traveled around the country visiting slums, visiting NGOs, visiting corporations, government officials, speaking to people in poverty to try to understand what was being done to address poverty and what was working and what was not. And that was a very profound experience because it showed me that that some of the best solutions to poverty might come from the people living in it, but they lack sometimes uh, some of the support needed to 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 get going. You know, so someone in in a in a village in India, for example, wants to start a a business that might employ other people in their community. They don't have the credit history to get a loan, um, and they they haven't often had access to the kind of education that would be helpful for them as they start a business. For a long time, I thought that business was was not a force for good. I thought it was as um, a self serving um, practice, and that was just sort of a, a myopic way in which I looked at it mm-hmm. for a long time, um, just because I'd heard a lot of stories about greed and capitalism and people really addressing their own needs. Um, and, but it was, it was realizing that that people in these communities want to start businesses um, and, and want to be entrepreneurs and can create powerful solutions to the situations that they are in um, that, that opened my eyes that there's something there worth supporting. So that's sort of what brought me to, um, this, you know, this conviction in Unreasonable Institute and now Uncharted. What is it about entrepreneurial approaches you think that empower people? 
I think entrepreneurship is powerful because I believe deeply in trial and error. In fact, I think that one of the things that sets human beings apart as a species on this planet is our ability to try, fail, try again, and, and learn from what we do. Entrepreneurs are willing to try things. They're set up to try um, with few resources and little time to get to a significant learning as to what might work as, as quickly as they can because they usually don't have a lot of resources. Then they're uniquely positioned to do this compared to maybe governments or corporations because governments and corporations are more optimized for stability. We have a lot of people. How do we ensure that their life continues to be the same or gets incrementally better? Um, but entrepreneurs you know, are, are able to try big things that maybe haven't been attempted before or we haven't found a way to make successful before. And that's what I think makes entrepreneurship powerful. So if you haven't solved the problem, trial and error, experimentation, innovation, I think is a powerful way for us to discover potential solutions. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Uber disclosed a breach of 57 million passengers and driver's records. Hackers accessed personal information like names and driver license numbers of the drivers and names, email addresses, and phone numbers of passengers. Though this breach was just recently announced, this personal information was actually stolen over a year ago. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect Good thing there's LifeLock. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats, threats you may miss by just monitoring your credit, like someone stealing from your 401k or committing a crime in your name. And if there's a problem, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can help you see more threats to your identity. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code FORBES. That's FORBES for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. Well, let's take a step back and just explain how Uncharted works. You know, how, how is it set up right now? How do you choose who joins? How long do they stay in the camp? So Uncharted, our, our objective is figure out what it takes to actually solve social or environmental problems and, and get it done. And so um, we have, you know, just recently changed our strategy. So now our model is taking what we used to do of finding great entrepreneurs and getting them support now we're starting with a problem, surrounding that problem with the right team of entrepreneurs and surrounding those entrepreneurs with the mentors and funding and training that they need to be successful. And what is it? So, what do you look for in, 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 um, in a resident? In one of the entrepreneurs. So um, we, we look for, for four things. The first thing that we look for is, are they having an impact? Do they have, do they have an idea or do they have and a business or an organization underway that has the potential to create deep and lasting change in somebody's life in need. Um, the second thing that we look at is scale. Do they have the ability to repeat that impact for many, many people, whether it's through a powerful business model or through getting the government to deploy what they're doing across the country in which they're working, et cetera. Number three is do they have a high quality team that has the skills required to actually build the thing um, or do they have the ability to attract the right people onto their team? Um, and then number four is, are they a fit with what we're offering? Can we really help them? So those are the things that we look for. And and so the model I just described to you is, is sort of where we've come from. Now what we're doing is we're taking on a specific problem. 
So most recently, we worked on the issue of food deserts in Denver. Um, food deserts are areas in which low-income people don't have access to healthy food within a mile of their house in any direction. And we were hired by the city of Denver government to, to take on this work. And what we did was we learned about, well, why are food deserts an issue? What are the challenges um, that, that prevent us from solving this problem? And we went out and recruited 10 organizations that were doing work to actually address the drivers of this particular problem. Um, and then we brought in um, mentors like the head of sustainability at Chipotle or the former mm. marketing director of Quaker Oats, um, people from the government in the city of Denver working in food um, who had real experience as to what it might take to make food accessible in these, in these kinds of environments. And then we brought in funders as well to help them get the capital that they need. Well, Tiju, what are some of your favorite entrepreneurs that have emerged from our Uncharted and, and how have they changed from when they came in? Yeah, totally. So uh, one of my favorite stories is about a gentleman named Moses Sanga who comes from Uganda. And um, Moses Sanga uh, uh, grew up in a tiny village in, in Uganda and um, through his own ingenuity and hard work, um, made enough money to become the first person in his village to get a high school education and then a college education. And then he wound up getting a job as a banker. So he's working in, as, in the city as a banker and come home, comes home on weekends to see his family. And one weekend he was coming home to visit his family and he bumped into his sister carrying a bundle of wood on her head. Mm. And uh, he, he saw her and asked what she was doing, and she started crying because she was ashamed. And she said, you have been paying my school fees for me with your job, and I'm afraid of disappointing you because I haven't been going to school. I missed school three days this week. And he said, well, how come? And he said, well, I've been sent by, by our family to collect firewood. And it turns out that there are no trees um, or any wood for miles and miles around this village. And so she and other girls like her have to go and walk five, 10 miles a day in order to find firewood and then bring it back. And they ultimately have no time to go to school during the day. Mm -hmm. So Moses Hanga was so moved and upset by this that he wound up quitting his job and took the $400 that he had saved up um, to figure out a way to convert banana peels, sugarcane husks, rice husks, all kinds of agricultural waste into a replacement for coal. And he started providing this coal um, for like 25 cents per, per kilo to community members in his village. And suddenly it was able to solve the problem. They weren't sending out these girls to, to collect firewood. Um, Moses knew that this was a huge demand across the entire country of Uganda and wanted to figure out how he could reach more people. At the time, he had about $10,000 in funding. He had generated about $10,000 in revenue at a team of five people. And he found out about Unreasonable Institute at the time, now Uncharted, and he, he wound up um, walking 17 kilometers to an internet cafe, printing out the application, filling out our application back home with a pen, and then coming back, re-uploading his answers onto the application and sending it off to us. Um, we accepted him into the program. He got on the first plane of his entire life to fly to Colorado to be part of our program. And um, at our program, he figured out um, 
his business model. He formed a board for the first time. He legally incorporated. He raised his first $150,000. We connected him to Ted where he wound up speaking. We got him an article in the New York Times to help him get some publicity. Um, he wound up raising several million dollars. At the time that he had come to Unreasonable Institute, he was reaching 150 families. Today, he's reaching over 2 million people with the charcoal that he's um, that he's supplying, this green charcoal um, and it's only been now five years since he came through our program. Um, and uh, it's, his business is profitable to continue to grow. It's a huge change for um, for him and for the people that he's been able to serve. And do you, Uncharted, take a stake at all in his business? We don't. We don't take a stake. Um, we, you know, um, a lot of our, our organizations are nonprofit. Um, you know, some of them are for profit, but increasingly we're actually trying to get them money and, and form partnerships um, with groups like the Rockefeller Foundation, who we just worked with, who gave us a fund to provide grants to the entrepreneurs that we've been able to support. So our entrepreneurs wind up getting um, free support, free um, free guidance from us. Um, and so we get our, our funding from foundations, from philanthropy, from um, from governments, um, those kinds of groups to make sure we can support the entrepreneurs as much as possible. Teju, tell us a little bit about the impact that Uncharted has had. Sure. So um, we directly have worked with 171 startup organizations around the world. Um, those 171 organizations have benefited 25 million people in different ways, um, whether through curing them of malnutrition or delivering them education or clean water or helping them get jobs. Uh, 25 million people have benefited from the work of the organizations we've supported. Um, and those organizations have raised $220 million. Uh, they've, they've, they've also generated about uh, $229 million in revenue. Um, they have grown within two years of finishing our programs on average seven and a half times in terms of funding, 6.2 times in terms of their revenues. So we're seeing organizations gain tremendous capacity to deliver the impact that they're um, that they're delivering. Um, and now, because those results have been um, strong, we've enabled uh, teams around the world to run our programs. So we have 64 programs operating in 24 countries that are now supporting over 592 startups, um, and that's continuing to grow um, and creating impact in 95 countries. So. Um, we hope it's just the beginning, um, but uh, that's that's been our, our those are our results so far. And can you just give us a sense of how quickly Uncharted has grown? Absolutely. So um, we started in 2009. We were running one program for several years, just out of Colorado, and um, it was it was open to entrepreneurs from all over the world. So we would take. 20, 25 entrepreneurs per year and support them through this through this boot camp. Um, after a few years of doing this, we wondered if other people might be able to use the model that we'd been developing um, successfully. So in 2014, we ran um, programs in Uganda and Mexico. So we found teams in Mexico and in Uganda to run our program in a way that was relevant for their particular context. Um, and then we brought them out to our to our program, gave them a lot of training and support. We helped them get funding from the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and then they ran um, our, our programs and it worked out really well. And so the year after that, we started to train a lot more teams 
Um, and since uh, in, in 2015, we only had those three programs. Today, we've run 64 programs in 24 countries in places like Ecuador, Colombia, India, Afghanistan, Cambodia, um, Australia, um, you know, all, all over the world. And Teju, how old are you? Uh, 30. It's very, so you were, how old were you when you started uh, what was then the Unreasonable Institute? Yeah, uh, I was 22 and uh, co-founded it with Daniel Epstein and Tyler Hartung, who uh, also went to the University of Colorado Boulder, where I went to school. Why did you change the name from Unreasonable Institute to Chartered? You know, for a long time, we really had this idea that um, what it took to to solve social and environmental problems was uh, persistence, relentlessness. And I think that is very true. That's an important quality. And the, the name Unreasonable really gets at that quality. But increasingly, we've realized that actually, you know, a, a, a thoughtful trial and error, a mm-hmm. courageous willingness to do something that you don't know how to do and and undertake an effort that is is something that you're not totally prepared for um, while engaging in, in, in thoughtful experimentation and trial and error is, is, for us at least, more at the heart of what it takes to solve social and environmental problems. Um, and that shift in our in our understanding also made us think, well, maybe in a different ethos is uh, more accurate to our approach. Um, so with Uncharted, we ourselves are not experts. We don't know exactly what it's going to take to solve the world's problems. But what we believe in is a human willingness to go into the unknown and to do things that we haven't done before. And it's that that quality in human beings that we most admire and wanted to incorporate into what we stand for. So that's why um, we shifted to Uncharted. And we're taking a quick break to say support for the Forbes Under 30 podcast comes from Amica Insurance. We're living in the age of the discerning shopper when savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience. Amica is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes and find out why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policies stay with them. One more time, that's meetamica.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amica Insurance. Hey everybody, it's Chad Prather here, the guy that's unapologetically Southern on YouTube. Join me every Thursday for the Chad Prather Show exclusively here on Podcast One. I'm bringing armchair philosophy and observational humor to what's going on in the world as guests help me sort it all out. Nothing is off limits on the Chad Prather Show. Again, every Thursday, it's new episodes of the Chad Prather Show right here on Podcast One. Download and listen to new episodes exclusively on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. And tell me a little bit about when you were 22 years old when you had the idea and you, Daniel, and Tyler want to get it off the ground. Where did you get that initial capital to, to get it off the ground? The, well, so the initial capital, I think, came from um, one of one of the people who's a mentor for, for us, uh, Neil Baer. 
He's the first person to give us any kind of funding. He's the former executive producer of Law and Order, sure, um, and uh, and um, at Law and Order SVU and ER. And he found out about what we were doing because um, the first year we had all of our entrepreneurs crowdfund the tuition to attend our program, um, and. He got an, an email from someone who was trying to raise money on, on the program and was really interested in what we were doing and gave us our first $50,000. And then we, we wound up um, uh, getting in touch with a foundation called the Small Foundation, which gave us another 50K also through that marketplace. Um, so that, that was where we got some of the first um, dollar contributions. But also the, the very first money in the door for us came from that marketplace, came from entrepreneurs crowdfunding their tuition to come to the program. This was back in 2009 when Kickstarter um, had just gotten started and we were super inspired by what they were doing. We approached them to talk about partnership and they wound up not working out so well. Um, and and they, they just were you know, focused on other things and have time to, to help us figure right, this out. Right. So we um, basically built our own crowdfunding platform and um, that's what enabled us to pull in about $160,000 um, with uh, which, along with that that first hundred um, k that we got from those two uh, donors, helped us you know get about a quarter million to get started. And what is the business model now to keep everything afloat? I mean, you're traveling, I imagine, every month, every week to a new country. Um, well, the business model is. Um, so first of all, it's it's not that I'm traveling or that our team is traveling every. Even though it is true that last week I was in another country, <laughs> and <laughs> right, many right. of my teammates were in another country. Yeah. Um. It, so so really, all of our all of our programs are run by local teams, um, and and local teams that know the culture, know the yes. context, can build the networks on the ground. So we provide them with what they need to actually run those programs. But the business model today is is coming from two sources. Number one is philanthropy, so general grants, general donations that help us support the organization. And number two is contracts. So we get contracts with groups like the City of Denver. We just had a contract with the Rockefeller Foundation um, to take on the issue of urban poverty. Those are contracts that we get in order to, to run specific programs and specific issue areas. So those two income streams are our business model. And what does your day-to-day look like, your role at uh, Uncharted? My role day-to-day is predominantly about fundraising. Um, and so I spend a lot of time talking to to funders or talking to potential uh, partners who would like to hire us to run specific programs and also participating along with the team in our strategy and our vision for the future. There's another philosophy that I know you subscribe to, which is that if you don't ask, you don't get. Can you tell me about any surprise responses you've had from asks that maybe seem far-fetched? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, we've we've learned that, especially from our partners at Four Impact. That's that's an organization that's raised two billion dollars, and their fundamental uh, strategy around fundraising is two words: just ask. <laughs> um, and it's an amazingly powerful and overlooked um, part of securing any kind of support, not just funding, um, any kind of support for your work, because. That's where everything begins. And and so we work with entrepreneurs and they say, I'm having a lot of trouble with fundraising. And we say, how many people have you asked for funding? And a lot of the time the answer is zero. 
And so we're like, well, maybe that's the place to start. <laughs> and it doesn't yeah. always solve everything. It's right. not like it in itself is the single thing that by itself will address all the challenges. But I think some of the most surprising experiences I've had around just asking are um, with the Rockefeller Foundation, for example, which is you know a well-known foundation. We found out about an RFP they put out for uh, for accelerator programs. The the day that it was due, I put together a hurried application, um, but we wound up getting on the phone with them and we wanted, we told them what we wanted to do and they wound up giving us a significant amount of, of money. Um, or I remember the first time I made a million dollar ask of the Blue Haven Initiative, um, it's a foundation run by Liesl Pritzker Simmons, um, who is the um, one of the heiresses to the Hyatt Hotel family fortune and uh, you know she was a child actress in movies like Little Princess and Air Force One and um, she wound <laughs> right. up you know coming to one of our programs and we got to know each other a little bit and um, and I wound up asking her sort of as a Hail Mary um, if she would ever consider supporting our work and um, she committed a million dollars to supporting the work that we were doing and I was blown away and 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 deeply humbled that she would she would want to provide us that kind of support. So, um, you know, we've gotten plenty of no's. Yeah, right. <laughs> that I I also haven't been surprised by, uh, but I think the first couple of times that we got some yeses from people, I was I was like, wow, really? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And are, are are there tips that you can give people? Because a lot of the people listening to this are entrepreneurs, and they definitely have the experience of asking for money. And it can be demoralizing and it can yeah. be crushing so that people stop. How do you – somebody once told me in a meeting with somebody where there's an ask, you have to leave an ask, a hard ask on the table. Leave the meeting with a hard ask on the table. Do you have any tips for people listening? Man, it's a great question and I think we're very much still still learning, um, especially about fundraising. It is, it's just really, really hard. I think that that fundraising – happens and it's successful when there's empathy there's felt experience of the work um and there's uh there's there's a clear there's a clear and compelling uh and vivid picture of of the future Mm -hmm. that a funder really believes is important to bring forth Mm. and it's connected to the personal legacy that they want to leave or to the to the to the to the the sense of significance that they would like to have. And so I think it starts with number one, understanding a potential funder. What do they care about? What are they after? Why are they a funder? What kind of things do they love funding? Um, and usually, you know, somebody is a especially philanthropic funder because they've been successful in some way. They have money. They want to move from success to significance. So what is it that gives them a sense of significance? Um, and so that's number one understanding what their motivations are. I think number two is how can you make what you are doing real for them? Because when you send somebody an email, when they have a conversation with you, that is not as powerful as meeting the people who you're serving and seeing the transformation that they get to go through because of your work. So for us, that's meant bringing funders to our programs having them meet with entrepreneurs, seeing the transformation that that comes out of these entrepreneurs' work and what they get from our programs. And I think lastly, it's, you know, it's this clear and compelling 
future. A, a funder, a funder's first question, again, as we learned from Four Impact, is, you know, to what end do you want this funding? Can you give an example of an obstacle that you've ex- experienced, something that you felt was insurmountable, and uh, you stayed the course? It worked out, or it didn't work out. I, you know, one of the very first, I think, sort of um, reckonings that we had was. I told you about this marketplace, this online crowdfunding platform where we had our entrepreneurs raise money. So the very first year that we existed, we had entrepreneurs, um, as part of the selection process, um, we challenged them. Can you raise the $6,500 that it will cost you to come to our program online? And can you be one of the first 25 out of the 50 finalists to do so? Yeah. Um, that's a signal that you can mobilize resources and people quickly. And that's the kind of thing that entrepreneurs need to be able to do. So, you know, we, we, we set up this whole challenge and then we built an online platform where people could describe their projects and where you would see sort of a progress bar of their having raised the money um, uh, for the for the program. And the day that the marketplace launched, it totally crashed. <laughs> and our, our our entrepreneurs, our 50 entrepreneurs are calling us, emailing us. Um, they're angry with us. They're saying things like, look, how can we trust you to put us through an intensive entrepreneurship training program when you can't even make a simple website work? Right. It's hard to have such a public failure where 4,000 people show up to mm-hmm. donate, you know, uh, to, to our entrepreneurs on this online crowdfunding platform and it just doesn't work. Talk to the Obamacare people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you want to own the failure with the, but by, by, by putting it on the page, you own the mistakes. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's what we realized we had to do. So we, we basically wrote an email and sent it to everybody and and the content of the email is basically like hey guys like look we came up short we really had this big ambition we really wanted to, to do this right and um you know we we didn't we didn't deliver and we are deeply sorry um we had such positive responses from people just because we were able to say look we we failed and we want we're going to do better um and that's that taught us a really powerful lesson in how to deal with that kind of situation. Well, Teju, it's been, it's been great talking to you. And I think because we started with Allison, let's end uh, on, on, a, on a positive note. Did you wind up asking somebody to go out with you that said yes? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did wind up asking somebody out who did say yes. And a very big part of it was the courage I had gained from multiple rejections that I had and realizing that, that, uh, it was going to be all right. But, uh, but I did take a lot, um, of value from those experiences and, uh, I'm really grateful for those lessons. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good luck with everything. And we'll be keeping up with, uh, with Uncharted. All right, Steve. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under 30. That's the number 30 at podcast1.com. Have you heard Spike's Car Radio here on Podcast One? It's comedian, actor, and writer Spike Ferrison sitting on the porch in Malibu talking to his famous friends about cars. My first guest is Jerry Seinfeld. He's right here. He was all right. 
Don't try to hug him. Or Chris Hardwick. I could feel everything on the road. I mean, it was right. basically like, it was like unprotected sex for driving. <laughs> Jeremy Piven. I hold you know what? I think years. you and Jerry are spiritually tied to cars, <laughs> and I respect it and I love it, but I don't quite get it yet, but I want to get it. Other past guests include Jason Bateman, Russell Peters, and even Adam Carolla. Mr. Adam I just Carolla. go with the queen. I mean, the king role has been filled, but the queen vacancies are open. You're the queen of all media. Get new episodes every Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, on the new Podcast One app or at Apple Podcasts. And if you like Spike's show, check out our other car shows like CarCast with Adam Carolla, Everyday Driver, or Shift and Steer, exclusively on Podcast One. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.